Rosh Hashanah is a very wonderful moment in the Jewish calendar. We refer to it as one of the high holy day services because in Leviticus chapter 23, we learn that it is the fifth festival that is listed. And as that fifth, fifth festival, also referred to as the Feast of Trumpets, the festival of the blowing of the shofarim, the blowing of the shofar, shofars, it was meant to prepare us for the next festival in Israel's calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So it's a rather interesting festival on this occasion because it is celebrative in one sense and it is reflective in another. And so on this occasion, one of the events that is particularly highlighted is found in Genesis chapter 22. It is the account in which Abraham is called by God and commanded by God to offer up his son Isaac. It's significant because it illustrates, first of all, the devotion of the heart of Abraham. It also signifies the growth in Abraham because this is at the tail end of Abraham's life. And so what he was prior to this point in time is very different than where he has arrived now. It's also important for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, because you'll notice at the end of the account, the Lord provides a substitute offering in place of his son Isaac. And the substitute offering is a ram that was caught by its horns in the thicket that then is sacrificed in place of Abraham's son Isaac. And thus on the feast of Trumpets, we blow the shofar, and we remember not only of Abraham's devotion, but also of God's provision. As I study God's word, I find that that which precedes everything is the grace and love of God. And so when God calls Abraham to offer up his son, from our perspective or from a limited perspective, we would say, how could God do such a thing? How could he expect something like that? But from the perspective of Abraham, he had come a long way in trusting his God and experiencing God's grace. And in experiencing God's grace, he was ready to follow him and to obey him. And so Abraham then becomes an example for us to follow God. Even in those mysterious places where some of our questions are not clear and where our sight is not exactly what, it would, what we would like it to be. So let's turn our attention here for a moment. In verse 1, it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham responds, Hineni, behold me. Here am I, is one of the ways the English translates it. But literally it means, behold me. Which means to say, Abraham is saying, I am ready to do whatever you would have me to do because he's experienced the grace of God so powerfully. He's ready to cry out, Hineni, to the Lord. There are other characters in Scripture who make the same cry when God calls Moses and tells him that he is to deliver his people from Egypt. Moses' response is, Hineni, behold me, here am I, ready to serve. When Isaiah 
in a vision in chapter 6 is caught up into the very presence of God. He is there, in, that is, Isaiah is in the heavenly temple, we are told in Isaiah chapter 6. And as he stands in the very presence of God and in the glory of the Lord is filling the temple, the Lord says, who will go for me? And Isaiah stands up and says, Hineni, here am I. It is the response of an individual and his faith and his trust and his delight in following after the Lord. So the Lord calls Abram, and Abram's response in faithfulness is, here am I. And then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. That's also another very powerful statement, because as you know, Isaac was not the only son of Abraham. And yet the passage here says, take your only son, Isaac. But when one understands something of the Hebrew language, we realize that the text is using a different word here that is unique in the Scripture. Because the word here, yachid, sometimes translated as one, is translated here as only. Because the meaning is, you're a unique son. You're one of a kind son. Isaac was Abraham's one-of-a-kind son because he was the son of promise. And he was also the son that was born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. A miraculous conception, a miraculous birth. And thus when God says, take your only son, he knows exactly who he's talking about. Not Ishmael, but rather Isaac, who is the unique son of Abraham. Indeed, in the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament Jewish Scriptures, when the Scripture speaks of Yeshua as God's only Son, the word is the parallel term, which means His unique Son. And thus it's a term to denote the Messiah of Israel, the one who would bring deliverance to His people and the people of all the world. And that idea of Yeshua as the only son, the unique son, comes right out of this passage where Isaac is referred to in the very same kind of language. And indeed, Isaac is a great example or prelude to the coming of Messiah. For like Messiah, he too was conceived miraculously. Even as the prophet said, the Messiah of Israel would be so conceived. And thus, this is a unique and miraculous display of God's power and might in providing an Isaac for Sarah and Abraham and providing Yeshua for Joseph and Mary and for the peoples of the world and particularly for his own chosen people. The text goes on to say, and he tells him to go to the region of Moriah. And to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. We know which mountain, although the passage here doesn't tell us, but later we are told that Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah, the very place where Abraham is going to bring Isaac to be offered up unto the Lord. Another unique parallel is being made. Because just as Isaac is uniquely the son of Abraham and Messiah is uniquely the son of God, the Messiah of Israel, 
Similarly, both would be offered up in the very same place. Isaac would be offered and only bound, but Messiah would be offered and would give his life a ransom for many, as Isaiah the prophet said, the Messiah would so offer himself. And so we're then told in verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. Whenever I read that passage, I'm always drawn to a pause because I know if it was me, and if God had told me to offer up my son, of course, I used to joke about this. If you knew my son, you know I'd be up early in the morning to do the very same thing. But no, no. What I wanted to say was, I know if it was me, I would take all the time in the world to obey this particular commandment. You know, and every father, uh, I hope, would. But he took with him two of his servants, verse 3, his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Here's another interesting parallel. You know, you just can't help but see these things. They jump out at you in verse 4. On the third day. Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. I don't know. It says three days. And you would ask, Why does it say three days? And I would say, Because it took him three days. You know, that it says three days. We shouldn't make more of it. But you can't help but remember as we look forward and as we reflect on the parallels between Isaac and Yeshua the Messiah, that indeed he would die and on the third day he would rise again. I'm not certain that's what he intends to convey, but I can't help but be drawn to the possibility that that is what's meant here. Because in the very same passage he says, the boy, the lad, and I will go. We will worship the Lord, and we will come back to you. And God had already told Abraham, you're to offer him up as a burnt offering. And Abraham had gone to do just that. That meant that his son would die. And Abraham was committed to doing this because, as we will see, he has the knife raised or poised in such a posture as to slay his son. It would take the angel of the Lord to call out to Abraham and again say, Abraham, Abraham. And for the third time, Abraham will say, Hineni, here am I. I'm ready to serve. What is it you would have me to do? And the angel of the Lord tells him not to slay his son. I'm sure he dropped that blade real quick when he heard those words. But up until that point, Abraham was committed. And his son was going to die. And yet Abraham here says that my son and I are going to worship the Lord. And we both will come back to you. The only way that was a possibility was for Isaac to be raised from the dead. That's the only thing Abraham could have been thinking about. Because Abraham was committed to killing his son. And if he said, as he says, we will come back, Abraham knew 
that God would raise him from the dead. That tells us something about the character of Abraham. Because the reason he was willing to obey and to obey quickly, to get up early in the morning and get things rolling, was because Abraham, some time before, 25 years before or so, was told by God that if he could number the stars in the sky, in the heavens, the Lord said, so will I multiply your descendants. And if you can number the sand on the seashore, so will I multiply your descendants. Abraham knew that somehow God would have to multiply his descendants through Isaac. And he believed it so deeply and he trusted God so implicitly that he went about the command that God had levied upon him, knowing that he must raise my son from the dead in order to fulfill the promise he made years before that he would multiply my descendants, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. And so Abraham exhibits his faith for all to see. I am going to offer my son, but we're both going to come back and worship you. And that meant he trusted God's word and his promise, and he knew he would raise him from the dead. That is mind-boggling to me. Is it not for you? To think that a man could believe so wholeheartedly on a promise from God that this son cannot yet die until he has offspring. Because through Isaac would his seed be multiplied. And so maybe we're not far off the mark when it says on the third day, and we learn that the Messiah of Israel on the third day would be raised from the dead. And Isaiah, interestingly enough, says at the end of chapter 53, he would see his seed and the Lord would prolong his days. And so what Isaiah says about the Messiah is, yes, he would carry our sorrows and our iniquities and our sin, and he would suffer and die in our place, Isaiah says. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that somehow he also would not stay dead, but would see the multiplication of individuals that would come to faith in him And experience life everlasting. Like Abraham who had faith in Isaac. So we are challenged to have faith in God's son. And thus experience life like Abraham would experience. The text goes on to say in verse 6. Abraham then took the wood for the burnt offering. And he placed it on his son Isaac. I think it's also interesting how involved Isaac is. We oftentimes think of him as just a passive individual in this, but he's not. He's going along with Abraham. He's carrying the wood here for the burnt offering. And it says that Abraham carried the flint knife and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac then speaks up. And he says to him, Abraham, father. 
And though my translation says, yes, my son, this is actually the second time Abraham says, Hineni, behold me. And Isaac then asks, he says, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Well, that's really the $64,000 question. Am I dating myself when I come up with a figure like that? (laughs) But that's the question, isn't it? Of course, Abraham could say, have you looked in the mirror? But he didn't. He didn't say that. He simply answered in verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. What an ambiguous expression in the Hebrew uh, statement. On the one hand, it can mean the Lord himself will provide a lamb in place or for us. I didn't say in place of you, but for us. The Lord himself will provide. But it can equally be read, the Lord will provide himself as a lamb. And both are really true, aren't they? For the Lord would provide a lamb in place of Isaac, a ram. And centuries later, the Lord would provide himself as a lamb for the burnt offering, as the Messiah of Israel would come into our world and give himself a ransom for many. And the two of them walk on. Look at verse 9. And when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar, arranged the wood on it. Then he bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And for the third time he says, Hineni. And he says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. I mean, the life of Abraham comes to a climax at this very spot. You know, back in chapter 12, we're in chapter, what is it, 22. But back in chapter 12, God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, the land of Iraq, the land of the Babylonians. And he called him to a land that he would just show him. He never told him where it would be or what direction. Just follow me. I'm going to lead you to this land. And Abraham follows, but not immediately. I mean, he, take, he begins his travels But as you read the Genesis portion, 11 and 12, we find that when he gets to Haran, from Ur to Haran, he waits there. In fact, it's there that his father dies, Terah, and it's there that he is buried. And of course, the question we raise is, wait a minute, didn't God tell him to go to the land he would show him? And he stopped along the way. But God is patient with Abraham, as he is with all of us. And at a next juncture in his life, Abraham then goes further and he comes into the land of promise. When he's in the land of promise, it seems that things are going well until Pharaoh has an interest in his wife. And Abraham's response is, she is my sister. It's a half-truth. He was, she was his half-sister. 
but she is preeminently his wife. And so we see that in Genesis 12, he was not like he is now, as we're reading in Genesis 22. Right there, he's fearful, he's afraid, and he's desirous of saving himself, and thus he lies about his wife. There are other instances where we see some falterings in the life of Abraham. But another wonderful passage is when the Lord tells him that he will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham stands up and says, if there are 50, will you still destroy the city? And the Lord says, not if there's 50. If there are 50 righteous, I will not destroy it. He says, what if there's 40? He says, if there are 40 righteous, I will not destroy the city. What if there's 30, 20? What if there is 10? The Lord says, if there's 10, I will not destroy the city. But unfortunately, there wasn't 10. There wasn't even nine. There weren't even five. There weren't even four. There weren't even two. There was only one who is righteous Lot, as the Britadashad describes him. But it's so interesting that Abraham's faith grows, and we see him in conversation with God like we would converse with one another. His relationship with God was so personal, so real, so vital, that his relationship was reflected in conversations. What a thing to think about. When we think about our own relationship with God, and people say, ask us about that relationship, how do we respond? We usually say things like, well, I go to synagogue every week, or I pray every day, or I read God's word. Or... But how many of us say, well, I have conversations with God? <laughs> they might think you're a little crazy, and I would. But the idea here is that Abraham is in a personal relationship that's reflected in this conversation and in other conversations. And here, Abraham's relationship is so intact. His faith is so devoted. His love for God is so deep that even a command like that results in Abraham putting all the pieces together. The promise God has made, the promise he made about Abraham, uh, about Isaac, and how his descendants would be multiplied through him. He puts all the pieces together and he says, I can trust him. And thus we will come back and worship. After we worship, we will come back to you. That is not unlike our own situation in our own day and age. The Bible is not just a book. It is God's word to us. It is his revelation, if you will, to us. It is his conversation with us. It's his words to us. And like Abraham, we are challenged to enter into a relationship with God, not based on the things we do, but on an interactive love for him. As we said this evening, we will love the Lord our God, with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our might. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not a statement about the Lord is one, but the Lord our God is one. So what God desires, and on this Rosh Hashanah as we think about this period of time in our calendar, and Yom Kippur, which comes up 
in a little more than a week when we reflect on the atonement God has provided for us. God's desire is that we would have a relationship with him. And so on Rosh Hashanah, there's so many things we could talk about. This is what I wanted to talk about this evening. But on Rosh Hashanah, we are challenged to make a choice. That's what Rosh Hashanah is really about. It's about making a choice. Like Abraham had to make a choice to follow and obey God. We are called upon to make a choice about our relationship to God. And as I've made the parallels between Isaac, some of those parallels, and with Yeshua the Messiah, the choice that stares us in the face is, is Yeshua my Messiah? Is the Lord of the universe my God? Do I have confidence that I have life in him? Am I certain? That when these days are over, because for every one of us here, one day they will end. For some, sooner than we suspect or think. For others, later than they might want to experience. But one day, our lives will end. And we must think about what then will we face. Is this all that there is? Or are we getting a glimpse into something more profound as the offering of Isaac reveals? There is a God who calls and a God who loves and a God who provides. For when Abraham's hand was stayed, he then looks up and he sees the ram caught in the thickets. And he names the place where he now offers the offering, Adonai Yireh. I know in churches they say uh, Jehovah Jireh. We think we got tops, you know, Jehovah Jireh, gyroscope. But it's Adonai Yireh, the Lord who sees is what his name, it mean, what that means. And when the Lord looks upon humanity, What does he see? He sees a need. And what does God do when he sees a need? He provides for it. So he's the one who sees. But he doesn't just see from a distance. He sees up close. And he doesn't just see up close. He gets engaged and involved. And he does something about what he sees. And what he sees is our need. We don't even see our need. But God sees it clearly. And he makes provision for us. The provision that he makes for us, the prophet Isaiah writes about in Isaiah 53. And he says, surely he, the Messiah of Israel, took up our infirmities. That's our need. We are people with infirmities. doesn't matter how often you go to the gym doesn't matter how much you can bench. It doesn't matter how long you can swim. It doesn't matter what you can do. We all are infirm. And as Yeshua himself says, that we are in need of a physician because we are not well. 
And the Lord sees us as we are. And he makes provision. And so he tells us that he took up our infirmities. The Messiah carried our sorrows. We thought and we think oftentimes that he was stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted by him because of his own sin. But what actually was going on was that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we're faced with a choice. Will we allow him to carry our sorrows, acknowledge it as such? Because Isaiah begins by saying, so who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If he has been revealed to you, you want to respond by believing in him. Let me close just by drawing attention to one final passage, if I could, and I'll do this very quickly. But throughout Scripture, there are always these challenges to make a choice. Look at Moses' words in Deuteronomy 28. I set before you life and death. Choose you life. He said to the people of Israel as they were entering in to the promised land. Joshua, who brought the people into the promised land, said, Choose you this day whom you will serve. For as in me and my household, we will serve the Lord. In a very similar fashion, Yeshua says the very same thing. He gives us a choice. And he says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few will find it. Notice the choice. There are two different gates you can enter. A narrow gate or a wide gate. There are two roads you can travel. A narrow road or a broad road. There are only two groups of people you can travel with. The many who take the broad road or the few that will take the narrow road. And there's only two destinations that we will arrive at. Life or death. And so the choice now is left up to us. What will we do with the Messiah who has come? The scripture speaks of a faithful remnant among the house of Israel who would walk through the narrow gate that would journey down the narrow, constrictive road, who would partner with and come alongside the few rather than to be at peace with the many, or maybe I should say, falling into the prey of following the crowd. 
But the real issue is where do the roads, the gates, the roads, and the people lead us? Will it lead us to life? Or is it a road that will lead us to despair? Messiah tells us to enter by him. He is the door through which we can enter. He is the road that we are to travel. He is the companion that we only need. And he is the way, the truth, and the life that we will have if we devote ourselves to him. Be like Abraham, this Rosh Hashanah. Listen to the voice of God and be quick to respond. And if he has spoken to you tonight, you should respond to him tonight. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your words to us. We thank you for your truth. And we are grateful for the example of a man like us, Abraham, who struggled in his following of you. But at the end of his life, he shines forth in a most beautiful display of faith and trust and love. So, Father, I pray that we might be like him and that our love for you would be evident. Our trust in you would be sincere and our following of you would be complete. We thank you that you are Adonai Yireh for you know our need even before we ask. And so, Father, may our hearts and minds be open to you. May we be responsive to your voice. May we find life through Yeshua, the Messiah, whom you have promised to us. And may we walk in your ways, and may you help us to do that, we pray. For it's in Messiah's name.